And if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. So Nehemiah 13, welcome to week 17, which is our final week of our Ezra-Nehemiah series, where we have been walking through these two books in a series that we have called Renovation, asking God to renovate our lives. And just like Ezra, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but just like Ezra, Nehemiah ends in a very peculiar way. And what I mean by that is this. Nehemiah ends in a disastrous way. So things don't end on a high note. In fact, it is a dark end to Old Testament history, which is what Nehemiah is. And we might wish that Nehemiah had ended with Nehemiah 12, where all the people rejoicing, the joy of all the people being heard from far away. Yet it is significant that Ezra and Nehemiah ends in the dark because the story is not fully over. So it is an end that makes us long for the rest of the story that we get in the New Testament, meaning that although Ezra nor Nehemiah end on a happy note, hear this, the Bible does. The Bible does, meaning the Bible ends with happily ever after for those who know the Lord. But until that time comes, there will be many unhappy moments in our lives. There will be many difficult moments that we will have to go through. So Nehemiah finishes with deterioration because we know, but, but because we know the whole story, we're able to anticipate what is coming, the hope that is coming. And before you think this morning, well, the last thing I need is another discouraging message from Nehemiah. I just pray that Today, we will, even in the midst of the low points that we're going to see, that we would leave here marveling in God's mercy, grace, and steadfast love towards his people then and toward us now. So as we've seen from this book already, is that our world is broken with broken down walls. So not many people would disagree that we live in a broken world. Yet, we as children of God must respond differently to the broken world around us, meaning we are to be a people of empathy. We are to be a people of compassion. What breaks God's heart should also break our hearts. We are to care deeply for one another as a family of faith, but then that love that we have for one another should also go out beyond these walls and to, and to the world in which we live. So, from the book of Nehemiah, we, we also learned that anytime you begin a work from God, you're going to have opposition, whether it be from without or from within. Let me give you a guarantee. If you want to guarantee opposition, and most people don't, but if you want to, begin to do a work for God. And if you begin to do a work for, for God, there will be opposition. And over the last few weeks, we have seen how we are as a people of God, how we are to respond to the word of God. And let me just say this from the beginning. We don't get to pick and choose what we want from Scripture. Meaning, for too long, we have lined Scripture up with our lives instead of lining our lives up with Scripture. And what I mean by that is this. We open the Bible, we read whatever text for the day, and if it doesn't relate to us, then we just ignore it and move on about our day and say, well, that was boring. Instead of realizing, listen, it's not about how it relates to me, it's how I relate to it. How am I relating to it? How am I obeying this book? So we are a, a people who are defined or even directed by this book. And let me just say this from this morning. This might sound a little odd or a little harsh. We need to stop apologizing for what the word of God says. 
when you apologize for the word of God, it doesn't make you humble. It makes you arrogant. It makes you arrogant. Now, granted, yes, we are called to speak the truth in love. So understand that. Don't be arrogant in the way we handle the word of God, but don't apologize for what God's word says. So as we come to the end of this book, after a great work, after great transformation, after revival, we see a people who are prone to wonder. They are prone to walk away from obedience to God. So from Genesis to Revelation, even to us today, 2023, we will continually see a tendency for all of us to drift away, whether it be quickly, most of the time slowly, from the presence of God. To backslide, if you, if you would let me use that word. In fact, hear the words of Charles Spurgeon. This is the quote that he gives on that very idea. He says, if you begin to slip on the side of a mountain of ice, the first slip may not hurt you if you can stop and slide no further. But alas, you cannot so regulate sin. When your feet begin to slide, the rate of the descent increases, and the difficulty of arresting this motion is incessantly becoming greater. It is dangerous to backslide in any degree, for we know not what it, to what it may lead. The Christian life is very much like climbing a hill of ice. You cannot slide up. If you want to know how to backslide, leave off going forward. Cease going upward and you will go downward of necessity. You can never stand still. What a declaration of truth over our faith. You can never stand still in your faith, brother and sister. You are, even, you are either growing closer to the Lord or you are growing further away from him. There is no plateau in this picture. So what I want us to do is I want us to dive into the word. Normally, we stand as we honor God's word, but we have a lot of word to read, so I'm going to let you be seated knowing you're going to stand in your hearts. And we have taken this, these two books in chunks to help us get through um, as quick as we have. So we're going to read all of chapter 13 together. And uh, what you will hear is before you, and you'll see on the screen as well. So beginning at verse 1, it says this. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chamber of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they were previously, or they had previously put grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were written by the commandment of the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering, the frankincense. I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? 
And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, and the, the son of Zechor, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them, on the day when they sold food, Tyrians also, who live in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Let me just stop real quick. This is the moment where some of you go, man, I went, just went from liking Nehemiah. I kind of love him right now. And then it says this, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews, who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. So th this moment, you're going from, I really love the guy, to, I, like, I love, love this guy and what he's doing. I mean, think about this. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoda, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living, it is powerful, God, and we ask that by your spirit you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your word today. Open our eyes, help us to see. Speak, of oh God, for we're listening. Have your way in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So the events of Nehemiah 13 took place many years after the events of the previous chapters. So after being governor for 12 years in Jerusalem, Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem. He now then returns to King Artaxerxes, the Persian capital of Susa, for an undefined period of time. Some scholars believe anywhere from 8 to 13 years he was gone. Upon his return, he discovered numerous transgressions of the law, meaning that at the end of chapter 10 or during chapter 10, the people said, we will obey all the law of God. Everything you tell us to obey, we'll obey it. Now Nehemiah comes back 8 to 13 years later, and everything the people had promised to obey, they were no longer obeying. They were disobeying. So the compromise that Nehemiah describes didn't take place overnight. The slide into blatant disobedience took years. One small compromise upon another small compromise, another, another small compromise. Normally when you and I move away from the Lord, it's a slow fade. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. The tug of the pagan cultures here moved the people of God's heart away from God to loving what the world around them loved. And the same thing for us. The world in which we live, the fallen system which we live, wants our hearts. They want us to love the things that they love. They want us to fit into their mold. Therefore, Nehemiah's story challenges us to pray for, to ask God to revive us, to do a work of renovation in our hearts, to keep our hearts with all diligence so that we are not giving our hearts the ways and things of this world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to lay before you four truths related to what we must not conform to. So truth number one is this, don't conform by drifting away from biblical purity. So don't conform by drifting away from biblical purity. On the screen, we have verses from Nehemiah 8. We have referenced these verses many times since we were in Nehemiah 8. But just listen to these verses. Or look at them. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, and he read, it, read from it facing the square from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who had understood, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. When we get to chapter 13, they begin by reading the law of Moses. So Nehemiah, he had gone back to King Artaxerxes, and then he came back to Jerusalem, and he found that all the reforms that he had made, many of them were brittle, if not completely broken or already fallen apart. And when Nehemiah returns, we read about a guy by the name of Tobiah, an Ammonite, who is now living in the temple. And a priest, we are told, let him in. That's like the joker living in the bat cave because Alfred let him in. I mean, nothing is right with this picture. And in case you have forgotten, Tobiah had actively worked against the people of God. We read about him in Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah 6. He had undermined the work of the people of God. He had undermined the work of God. So Nehemiah leaves, and one of the caretakers of the house of God, so the temple the center at which God's people were to be encouraged, motivated, comforted, corrected, sent out into the world. A caretaker of the temple made room for Tobiah to live in the middle of the house of God, clearing out even some aspects of worship so he could live there. And I love how Nehemiah evicted him. I can imagine Tobiah coming home one day and all of a sudden all his stuff is out, out in the streets and he's like, what in the world? 
Like, why is my stuff out in the streets? And he looks in the window of what used to be his, house, his room, and th- there Nehemiah is going, uh-uh, nope. This is no longer your house, which, of course, is a foreshadowing of what would happen around 400 years after this when a certain Messiah would walk in Jerusalem, would come into the temple, and would himself clean house, making a cord, overturning tables, dumping out bags of money, driving the people out. One commentator said this, Nehemiah stormed in as violently as one day his master would. But think about this, back to the people. This is where we see that we as a people of God, we all have a tendency over a period of time to grow less and less serious about holiness. We tend to allow things in our lives that shape us or motivate us in a way that take away our love for God that take away our desire to become more and more like God. Yet God has been so gracious in this shift, in this drift in our lives, meaning God has given us a spiritual compass. God has given us his word, which is truth, that keeps us or should keep us away from the drifting tides of this world. Just listen to a few verses from Psalm 119 that describe so many ways in which the word of God is beneficial. Verse 11 says, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And then verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So we have a spiritual compass that leads us into all truth. But follow with me here. Not only do we have a spiritual compass, we have a spiritual community. God has given us a community of faith. Now, let me be honest with you this morning, and this is when your ears perk up because it means your pastor is about to confess um, one of his sins. So let me be honest this morning. I have blind spots in my life. Now, I don't know what they they are because they're blind spots. And I would bet bet, um, that every single one of us have areas in our lives that we can't see. Therefore, God in his graciousness to us has given us his word and his spirit by which we read his word, his spirit illuminates and shows us, convicts us of areas in our lives, maybe puts those blind spots on display, but because we are human and sinful, we can push back and we can ignore and we can just shut the Bible altogether. But then what God has done for me is not only has God given me his word and his spirit, God has given me a a godly wife and godly family and godly friends that surround me and sometimes just their presence in my life is that motivating accountability and then others is speaking into my life in different ways that I need to hear it yes my sister is back there shaking her head like she's the one sometimes she is the one but God has given us that God has given us a spiritual community and people so God knowing that you and I are prone to drift prone to wonder God has given us a anchor a way to keep us in safe waters he's given us his word and he's given us other people and that's why I continually lay before us that listen it's not just enough to show up here on Sundays you will never pull out of 
the community of faith, all that you should be pulling out of the community of faith if all you do is show up and sing a song and listen to a message. If that's it, you're not getting the full extent, meaning we need other people in our lives. We need iron, sharpening iron. We need other people that we can connect with throughout the week that are going in the same direction that we are going even when it's a struggle. And let me tell you one of the great paradoxes of our Christian faith. One of the great paradoxes of our Christian faith is that when we are honestly, when we honestly confess our weaknesses and our struggles, in doing so with other people, it actually helps to edify and encourage us all to pursue holiness. It's a, a paradox of the Christian faith that when I am honest with other individuals about my struggles, it helps us all not to say, well, we all struggle, let's just struggle together. But yes, there's that. But no, we want to pursue God even more. So don't conform by drifting away from biblical purity. And then number two, don't conform by drifting away from biblical authority. And I'm going to pause here and take a deep breath because everything I'm about to say is about to sound so self-serving. And I pray that I can turn it around in the end. I hope I can. But this is one of those awkward things where following the text, and we're doing so, but it's going to be awkward. So as a people of God, we are all prone to drift out of safe waters, to drift into dangerous waters because of our inability to place ourselves under biblical authority. What I mean by that is this. We don't desire spiritual authority or any kind of authority. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is it the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So even though the people had previously promised we will bring in our tithes, we will support the work of God, they had stopped supporting. And therefore the Levites and the singers said, listen, we can't support ourselves. Let's go take care of our own fields and get our own food. And therefore the work in the house of God had stopped and everybody was okay with it except for Nehemiah. Nehemiah came in and said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, not just Nehemiah, if you read, as we read this past week, Malachi had a lot to say about it as, as well. But I, I completely understand that we live in a culture that places zero value on authority itself. Yet let me read a verse about church. In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's Hebrews 13, 17. And this verse will sound so countercultural. And so strange that it might even rub your heart the wrong way. In fact, as I read it, I want you to pay attention to what your heart does. Because if it begins to rub your heart the wrong way, it might show that there's a drift taking place in your life. And I promise you, I'm not reading this for self-serving reasons. So Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, let me stop there. We'll read the rest in just a second. But nobody joins a church based on that verse. Nobody joins a church and they say, I'm going to obey these individuals that are preaching the word of God or teaching that God has put over my care. When they weigh in on my life according to the word of God, I'm going to obey them. When they preach and proclaim God's word, I'm going to submit my life to that. Nobody does that anymore. In fact, people do the opposite. They go, listen, if those guys or those individuals 
If, if they try to use God's word to press in on my life, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else that will mind their own business and stay out of mine. And this is kind of where we are as a church. But do you see how dangerous that is? Do you see how dangerous to say you have no business to speak into my life at all? You have no business to know what's going on. You have no business to know anything about my life. And I, I grew up in the church. I've been in church. I, as I say all the time, I was born on a Tuesday. And my mom was holding me at the organ of a church on, on Sunday. So I know how church is. And I know how difficult it can be to trust other people with our stuff. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I wish I could tell you that if you come and you're part and you do all these things in our church, you'll never be hurt. But unfortunately, we have people here. And because we have people here, we're going to have issues here. And we're going to press back on those issues and we're going to continue to pursue the things of God the best that we can. But it takes our honesty and it takes us understanding the word of God before us. Let me just say this. For you might, might be thinking, this is really self-serving of you right now, Micah. I can assure you the Bible puts far more weight on leadership than you could imagine. James 3.1 says, there, I will have strict judgment upon me. The writer of Hebrews even says that, those who will have to give an account. I'm going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for the way that I shepherded you. And there are days I'm like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it now, God. And then there are days I'm like, God, give me more time. God, give me a lot more time. And it's scary. But just, just listen to the way that Hebrews 13, 17 ends. It says this, let them, meaning those who are leading, those who are keeping watch of your souls, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. I wish I could stand before you today and say that leading you as a pastor is always joyous and <laughs> never difficult. I wish I could say I'm always rejoicing and never groaning. There are times where I am tempted and led to groan. But let me say this. Do you realize that according to what we just read, you can lessen the load of your pastors by reading, just accumulating, gobbling up, hungering for the word of God and obeying the word of God on your own? And when you do so, you lessen the load of the pastor, yet when you don't, the pastor and pastors have to carry extra weight? Let me encourage you to place yourself under the authority of God's word given to you by God-ordained leaders who, let me say this, who stick to this. Who stick to this. Not, not trying to be self-serving in any way, but what the word of God says. Even realizing this. I realize when we go through books of the Bible like we go through, there are times where I, I open it up and I'm like, let's see what's this week. And I read it and I'm like, I really don't want to preach that. Like, I really don't want to preach that this week. I'd rather not. I'd rather preach that God is for us and who can be against us. I'd rather really do that this week. But there's something about this. There's something about going word for word, verse for verse, through the word of God where we can't make up our own doctrine and we can't make it about us. We have to make it about him. And so I pray that you would place yourself there. And let me just say again, there, there are no perfect churches, which is a good thing because... If there were, we wouldn't be invited. So praise God, there is room for us. So don't conform by drifting away from biblical authority. And then number three, quickly, don't conform by drifting away from biblical identity. Don't drift away from biblical identity. And look at what it says here in verses 15 through 18 on the screen. In those days I saw in Judah people 
treading winepresses on the Sabbath. I warned them. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And it is here that we see that we are often prone to drift by constantly doing instead of becoming. And and let me explain that. If we're not careful, we get so busy working, 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 doing, 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 serving, serving, serving. But what we're not doing is we're not becoming. We're not being changed in the presence of the Lord. So the Sabbath was woven into the fabric of how God created the universe. And what God says to his people is that once a week he wanted them just to stop and be. They were to be reminded that their identity is not found in all the work they did, but their identity was to be found in who they were as the people of God. And please hear me. We lose our identity through constant work. And I'm not saying that work's a bad thing, but we have a tendency to lose our identity because we are so focused on work. Therefore, when someone asks you who you are, you immediately tell them what you do or what you used to do. And that has become our identity instead of telling them who you are because of what God has done for you. Please hear me this morning. Who you are is not what you do. It's not what you do. That is not you. Who you are, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a child of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you are becoming more and more like the Son of God. I think of Luke 10. In Luke 10, Mary and Martha, Jesus shows up. Mary just sits at Jesus' feet. Martha is working, doing everything. And she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, can you say something to Mary? Like, I'm doing everything and Mary's doing nothing. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things. Yet, Mary has chosen the one thing that matters that can't be taken away from her. And what is it? Relationship. The relationship with me, that's the one thing that matters that can't be taken away. So we lose our identity through constant work, yet we gain our identity through continual worship. Look at verse 22. I want want to show you something here of what the people did. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gate. So that's, that's an important thing, but here's where I want to kind of press in a little bit because most of us have this default setting where we think I clean myself up then I come to God I mess up I clean myself up I come to God I mess up clean myself up come to him again and we sit here and we do this and God is screaming from heaven stop just stop rest in the idea rest in the truth that you are mine you're already mine Understand this principle, God is not love, or God is not in love with the future version of you. The version where you have yourself all cleaned up and every wrong is now right and you're able to come to God with a halo on. God is in love with the present messed up version of you. That should have got an amen from somebody who's messed up in here like me. God is absolutely in love with you right now. And we say, but, but I need to give this up. And yeah, maybe there are many areas in our lives that we need to grow in. There are so many areas in our lives that we need to grow in. But you not doing that, whatever that is, doesn't rescue you before God. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness rescues you before God. 
Therefore, the Sabbath screams, stop. Just be my son. Be my daughter. You are loved. You're loved. Therefore, we don't find identity before God by our work, but by our worship. Understand who you are. And then number four, don't conform by drifting away from biblical peculiarity. And that sounds so weird to say that we, as a people of God, are called to be a peculiar people, a set-apart people. In fact, look at verses on the screen, 23 through 25. It says this, In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And what's at stake here is the law of God. In that day and age, the Holy Scripture was in the language of Judah. So you had people who could not speak the language. Therefore, they would not know the worship of God. They would not know the word of God. They would not know the God of this word. Let me put it to us in a different way. For us, are we, are we raising children to be biblically illiterate? Are we raising children not to know the Bible? Because that's what it's talking about here. Listen, I'm so thankful that we are partnering with UC and that we have other partnerships here, of families here that send their kids to other places. But let me just be very clear. UC is a great partner. We, the First Baptist Church of Virginia, want to be a great partner. But parent, it's, it's our responsibility. I'm going to have to stand before God one day, and I won't be able to say, well, that church that I sent my kid to, it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility for my kids to know the Lord. One commentator said this, a single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. Let's pick up now at verse 25. Because Nehemiah writes, I confronted them, I cursed them, and let me just stop for those who are thinking, yes, I now have the biblical thing to be able to curse people out. That's not what Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah is not using a bunch of four-letter words. Nehemiah is stating and declaring the curses of the Old Testament law upon the people. But he cursed them. Then he beat some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them take an oath in the name of God. Like, who's not going to take that oath? Like, everybody's going to take that oath. But do you see why I say this book ends in such a strange way? Nehemiah literally shows up. He beats half the people. He pulls their hair out. And then the end. What what a weird way to end a book. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But the last way I want us to see that how we drift from God is through a tendency to be nearsighted and to be lazy about the things of God. And here's what is nearsighted. We lose sight of the big picture. Let me ask you this question. Are you living for the big picture of God or are you living for the little picture of you? What picture are we living for? The big picture of him or the little picture of us? And this is where I want us to see that, yes, we have been called to spiritual separation. We have been called to be in this world but not of this world. We're called to be different. We're called to be peculiar. It's not always easy to do. I'm going to make another confession. Me as a pastor, listen, I like being liked. I like it when decisions I make are are applauded by everyone. The problem is that never happens. And I, I hate confrontations. And I find myself having to have many of those. I don't like these things because it's hard to go against the, the grain. Yet that is our calling as a people of God. 
So after making a covenant a few chapters back, what would have been several years back, the people are now giving themselves into marriage with other nations. Not just other nations, but godless nations. Remember we said a few weeks back, this isn't a racial pride thing. This is a God thing. This is how idolatry came into their camp. Nehemiah even includes Solomon as an example. So a not, a not so wise wise man who gave himself to godless women. They turned his heart away. And this, this calling, this separation is so tough. It's not easy. Yet, as bad as things end here in Nehemiah 13, we are reminded that our God is a restoring God. He's always known all the ways that we drift from him, and yet he is gracious, he is merciful, he's abounding in steadfast love, he is for us, and if he is for us, who can be against us? And this final discouraging chapter of Nehemiah serves to remind us that we need more than just good leadership, and we need more than just someone to come in and enforce the law. We need a Savior who will once and for all rescue us from our sin. We need a Savior who will transform us from the inside out. We need a Savior who, by his sacrifice on the cross, will reconcile us to God. We need a Savior who will give us a new heart, take away our, our heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh that allows us to obey God. And Nehemiah points us forward to Jesus and what Jesus would do. The point is this. Nehemiah is saying, I can't change your hearts. But we look back now and we go, but Jesus can. He can. And that's good news for all of us in this room today. And because of that, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. Because of that, we are able to live and no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that by testing we may prove and discern what is the will of God, the good, acceptable, and perfect will. I want to end today with the words of, of Billy Graham. And he says this, Times have changed, but human nature hasn't. The pagan world is still trying to put its stamp of conformity on every follower of Jesus Christ. Every possible pressure is being brought to bear upon Christians to make them conform to the standard of this world. We often ask ourselves, how could the early church turn the world upside down when millions of Christians can't even keep it right side up today? The answer is simple. They didn't conform their faith to the world. They had the truth and they refused to water it down. They held a faith that would not compromise. In due time, they turned the philosophical and religious world upside down. Brothers and sisters, may we not be a people who conform. May we be a people who are set apart for the glory of God, living for his glory, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and becoming, not just doing, but becoming who he is, who he's calling us to become, what he is doing in our hearts and lives. And it begins with how we treat this book and how we respond. And I pray today that we would leave this book, leave this study, these two books, asking God to continue to renovate us, to continue to revive his work in our lives, knowing that we are weak, we are weak, yet he is strong. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, and we're going to call the...
the praise team forward. And as you stand, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the power of it. And we pray that you would help us as your people to, God, give ourselves to you, to give ourselves to your word. To be a people, Lord, who line our lives up according to this, your book. Lord, that we would be a people, God, who submit to your authority. And what you say that thus says the Lord matters even today. Help us to be a people who don't conform to the pattern of this world. But people who are transformed as our minds are renewed by, in, and through you. Just finish this time. Work in our hearts and lives, God. In Jesus' name, amen.